Hello. A few months ago, I had the privilege of delivering a faith and life lecture at the church of St. Philip the Deacon in Minneapolis. Unfortunately, that talk wasn't recorded, so here it is, taken from my notes as far as I can remember it. Science and religion. Are they friends or foes, or are they just neighbours who never talk? A few years ago, there was a Simpsons episode. During that, a court order was slapped on religion and told to keep away from science. Authors like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking seem to think that science is one of their best weapons against religion. And many people think that the history of science shows that Christians have held back progress. In this talk, I want to show that they are all wrong, even the Simpsons, both about how Christianity and science have interacted in the past and how they relate to each other today. And I also want to have a look at some of the most shocking discoveries of modern science and what they tell us about what it means to be human. Because science doesn't belong to atheists. Christianity can claim to be both one of its parents and its friends. So I think for Christians it's time to reclaim our scientific heritage. So let me start looking back at the history. The fact is today that most people still think that science and Christianity have been locked in an eternal conflict and that Christianity has consistently held back progress in science. But this, as historians now know, is a myth. In the English-speaking world, the conflict thesis owes much to the work of two historians of the 19th century, John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White. Draper was a chemist who took part in a famous debate between Bishop Wilberforce and T.H. Huxley in the aftermath of the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species. We'll come to that a little bit later. Now, Draper's book was quite a racy history of the conflict of religion with science, but it's really about the conflict between science and the Catholic Church. In fact, Draper was so sympathetic to Islam that his book was translated into Turkish in around about 1900. Andrew Dixon White was a diplomat who later founded Cornell University. He wanted his university to be a wholly secular institution and he successfully fought a battle to keep any kind of clergy off the governing body. His book, A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology, was what gave the conflict thesis academic respectability, with the horde of footnotes that mill around the foot of each page. But reading it today, it's hard to believe that he could have written what he did if he'd done all the research and reading that he claimed. The conflict thesis in the 19th century arose then because of particular professional and political arguments. White's struggle to keep Canal a secular university and Draper's prejudices against the Catholic Church. And someone like T.H. Huxley, Darwin's bulldog as he was called, wanted to wrest the control of science away from the amateur gentlemen and the clergy who controlled the Royal Society in London. He wanted science to be a profession in its own right and stand up on its own two feet. 
So Huxley was happy to use the conflict thesis as a way to attack science. Extinguished theologians, he famously wrote, lie about the cradle of every science as a strangled snakes beside that of Hercules. These words appeared in his anonymous review of Darwin's Origin of Species in a Westminster Review. But the myth of conflict is older than Huxley and White. It originates in the disputes between Catholics and Protestants in the 17th century. The thesis was further developed by the philosophers of Enlightenment France in the 18th century. Their anti-clericalism was motivated by a perception that the Catholic Church was an obstacle to social progress. And this, to be fair, was probably true. Ancient regime France was an absolute monarchy that had the wholehearted support of the Church. In this environment, it was unsafe to attack the Church directly, and so the philosophers used history to make their argument. For example, Voltaire painted a picture of the Middle Ages as being an era dominated by the Catholic Church, and then he trashed the intellectual life of the Middle Ages and thus trashed the Catholic Church at one remove. Medieval philosophy, he wrote, bastard daughter of Aristotle's philosophy, badly translated and understood, caused more error for reason and good education than the Huns and the Vandals. But he was talking about the Pope and not medieval philosophy. And Jean-Laurent d'Alembert, in the introduction to the Great Enlightenment Encyclopedia, provided a potted history of a great conflict between science and religion. But today, modern historians have discovered that many of the incidences of conflict cited by earlier writers were either massively distorted or never even happened. Probably the best example of this is the myth of the flat earth. And just to be clear, nobody in the Middle Ages thought that the earth was flat, and a flat earth was never at any time the doctrine of any Christian denomination, and no one was ever persecuted for believing it. Okay, there were some people in late antiquity who did say that the earth was flat, but they were not lastingly influential. The myth of the flat earth seems to have started with the philosopher Sir Francis Bacon writing in the early 1600s and attacking medieval Catholics. It was popularised in the 19th century by the novelist Washington Irving in his fictionalised biography of Christopher Columbus. But in fact, contrary to what George Gershwin song, no one laughed at Columbus when he said the earth was a sphere. Everyone knew this already. There's also the example that the church was supposed to have banned lightning rods. This is one of Andrew Dixon White's specials. Lightning rods, as you'll know, are designed to attract lightning to the building and then conduct it safely down to the ground. But of course not everyone was immediately convinced that actually trying to attract the lightning was a terribly good idea. And some people also believed that lightning strikes might be so destructive that they cause earthquakes. In fact, a Boston pastor once alluded to this, and White grabbed the opportunity to show that the church had tried to ban lightning rods. Neither did the church try to ban zero. That never happened. Just a few years ago, an author called Charles C. wrote a book called Zero, 
the biography of a dangerous idea, about how the idea of zero had been suppressed for centuries. But amazingly, it never seemed to have occurred to him through all his research that in fact his own idea was completely false. There was no ban of zero. It is true that when Arabic numerals, actually Indian numerals, first appeared during the Middle Ages, there was no agreement about which symbol should be used for which number. That actually continues to this day. Our zero is a symbol for a five in the modern Middle East. So there were obvious concerns that confusion could reign. And in the 13th century, the city council of Florence insisted that unambiguous Roman numerals should be used in all official documents. It seems that this ban on Arabic numerals was what was responsible for the idea that the church had tried to ban zero. Of course, that would have been a very foolish thing for the church to do, but not nearly as foolish as excommunicating Halley's Comet. That didn't stop the story that Pope Callistus III tried to do exactly that in 1456 from spreading. Quite why popes would be going around trying to excommunicate giant balls of ice is never explained. The story itself seems to be a misreading of the sources with a juxtaposition of the appearance of Halley's Comet and a defeat of the European forces by the Turks. There's a bit more truth behind the idea that the church tried to ban human dissection. After all, human dissection has been forbidden by almost all cultures in the world. So what's remarkable is that in the Middle Ages the church didn't ban this when almost every other culture had. Even in the ancient world, cutting up dead bodies was not allowed, although rather distastefully, scientific vivisection of prisoners was allowed briefly in Alexandria. In 1300, a papal bull was issued which said that crusaders' bodies could not be boiled so that they could send their bodies home. But this had nothing to do with dissection. It was simply the crusaders who died in the Holy Land wanted to be buried in the family crypt, and if the bodies were shipped home, they would, shall we say, have smelt quite bad by the time they reached their destination. The alternative was to boil their bodies, or render the flesh off the bones, so the bones could be neatly packaged up and sent back to the grieving wives. The Pope thought that this, I think in common with us, was an extremely unpleasant thing to do, and said that the crusaders should be buried where they fell. His bull was nothing to do with dissection. And there's also no evidence that the great anatomist Vesalius in the 16th century got into trouble in the aftermath of the publication of his great book on the fabric of the human body. Contrary to the story sometimes told, he wasn't sent on a pilgrimage by the Inquisition. In fact, dissection seems to have started in the Middle Ages with legal autopsies, some of them directly ordered by the Pope and then they were used for medical training. And what about all those scientists who are supposed to have been burnt at the stake? Well, the fact is that no one has ever been burnt by the Church for scientific ideas, not even the notorious figures of Giordano Bruno or Michael Servetus. Of course, they never deserved the terrible fate that met them, but both of them were burnt for reasons which had nothing to do with their own scientific theories. It's one of the great ironies of history that the only great scientist to be executed was Antion Lavoisier, the father of modern chemistry. 
but he was guillotined by the fiercely anti-Christian Jacobins who considered themselves to be children of the Enlightenment during the French Revolutionary Terror of 1794. And finally I should mention perhaps my own hobby horse, the fate of the Great Library of Alexandria, for which Christians have often been blamed. The library itself is largely a mythical con construct, and much of what we know about it comes from sources dating well after its supposed destruction. And to be fair, a lot of people, from Julius Caesar to Islamic invaders, have been blamed for its loss. It was Edward Gibbon in the 18th century getting confused with a different library who first said that Christians had burnt it down. But in fact, when he, what he was talking about was the destruction of the Serapium Temple, sacked in 390 AD on the orders of the Roman Emperor Theodosius. And that temple had once included a library, although that had been removed by the time the Christian mob appeared. So in conclusion, I think we can say that when one comes across an example of historical persecution of scientists or a way that Christianity has held science back, we should treat it with extreme scepticism. Of course, there have been some real examples of where science and religion have clashed, and we'll come to those a little bit later in this talk. First of all, though, it's worth clearing up some of the misconceptions about the Middle Ages, which are so tied up with popular ideas about science and religion. Because the fact is, the conflict myth is bound to the idea that the Middle Ages were a superstitious dark age when nothing of consequence really happened. But in fact, historians now know that this was an age of reason when logic and philosophy were harnessed for the progress of theology. During the 12th century, period now often called the 12th century Renaissance, the cream of ancient Greek and Muslim learning was translated into Latin for the benefit of the church. It sparked off an intellectual ferment where figures like Peter Abelard and William of Conche argued for the place of logic in theology. They claimed that nature and reason are both God's creation and so properly used they cannot conflict with his word in the Bible. They didn't have all things all their own way. Some opponents, such as St Bernard of Clairvaux, supported a more mystical Christianity, and he saw reason as a threat. But despite winning his battles against Peter Abelard, in fact, Abelard was convicted of heresy twice, St Bernard lost the war. Reason became an essential tool for Catholic theology, and St Bernard has had to content himself with having an alpine dog named after him. It was in the new universities that grew out of the cathedral schools where Abelard and his friends had taught that reason really found its home. And these universities also gave natural philosophy and mathematics a secure place to be practised. And the universities were new. The self-governing institutions with their own statutes, they were nothing quite like what had existed before in the ancient or Islamic worlds, and are a model which is still used today throughout the world, and most successfully in the United States, where so many of the world's greatest universities are now to be found. The institutions in Bologna, Oxford and Paris can all trace their origins back to the 12th century. 
the University of Cambridge was founded in 1209, when Oxford students and dons had to flee from their town following the death of a student's mistress. Her friends lynched his roommates, and this caused such a massive dispute that a substantial part of the university upsticks and set off for Cambridge, where they received a warm welcome. For some reason, during a recently celebrated 800th birthday of the University of Cambridge, not much was made of these sad events. And finally, we should not forget that the Middle Ages was a period of great technological invention. Agricultural productivity massively increased through the use of heavy ploughs and water mills to process grain. This allowed a large increase in population that wasn't checked until the dreadful Black Death of the 14th century. The 13th century saw the invention of mechanical clocks and spectacles. And the late Middle Ages, gunpowder was brought over from the Far East and perfected into the kind of weaponry which allowed European colonists to subjugate much of the world. And printing also came from the Far East, where it was used by Johann Gutenberg to give us the modern book. So although not all of these inventions were actually created by Europeans, Christians of the Middle Ages were very open to outside ideas which they adapted and perfected to suit themselves. And what about the scientific theories of the Middle Ages? Well, for a long time it was assumed that there weren't any. But now modern historians have found that the pioneers of the so-called scientific revolution were using medieval science and sometimes passing it off as their own discoveries in order to write their foundational texts on modern science. For example, everybody has heard of Nicholas Copernicus because in 1543 he published his famous book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, which claimed that the earth goes around the sun rather than the sun round the earth, as the ancient Greeks and everybody subsequently had believed. Copernicus dedicated his book to Pope Paul III, and he never suffered or expected religious persecution. In fact, he'd privately circulated his ideas for several years, and these had been read by senior churchmen, including a cardinal, who had urged him to publish. It's true he delayed publication until he was on his deathbed because he was a perfectionist, and he was concerned about what other mathematicians and philosophers might make of his work. After all, a moving earth did seem to be extremely implausible. We can't feel it, and it's very hard to believe that we are spinning and hurtling through space at high speed, without even getting the wind in our hair. That's why before 1600, it's estimated that there were probably less than 10 convinced Copernicans. But one of the arguments that Copernicus used in order to explain how it is that we can't feel the Earth moving is relative motion, and how, when a ship is moving at a constant speed, it's difficult to tell whether the ship is what is in motion or what you're watching. And this is an argument that was lifted straight from the work of Jean Bieudin, a 14th century philosopher of science, who was asking the question whether or not the Earth is rotating. Kepler's ideas didn't convince his contemporaries, but those of Johann Kepler, a devout German Lutheran, did effectively prove 
heliocentrism was true. Johann Kepler saw that there were tiny inaccuracies in the best current models that were available. And as an extremely devout man, he thought that God just doesn't make mistakes like that. His creation had to be perfect. And eventually Kepler realised that he could produce the perfect model by using elliptical orbits rather than a circular orbit that Copernicus and the Greeks had believed were essential. The result was Kepler's astronomical tables, which were so staggeringly accurate compared to everything that had gone before, that they substantially convinced people that his heliocentric model had to be correct. There was no other way to believe that he could be as accurate as he was. That the idea that the Earth goes around the Sun is now considered to be the foremost example of the conflict between science and religion is down to the fate of just one man, Galileo Galilei. Heliocentrism hadn't been a particularly popular idea at the beginning of the 17th century, but it was sometimes being used as theolo by theologians as an example of where the Bible might be figurative rather than should be taken literally. The Catholic Church, on the defensive because of the Protestant Reformation, consequently banned the idea that heliocentrism might be actually true in 1616. Galileo was one of the supporters of the idea that the Earth goes around the Sun, but he was specifically assured by the senior cardinal Robert Bellamine that he'd done nothing wrong. But Galileo was subject to the ban on heliocentrism, a ban which he thought was a mistake, and set about trying to correct. He counted on his friendship with the new Pope, Urban VIII, to let him flout that ban. In fact, the Pope agreed that he could write a book comparing the old and the new systems. And this book, The Dialogue and Two Chief World Systems, was initially passed by the Catholic censors, because they thought that the Pope had approved of it. But when the Pope himself read it, he was outraged. One of the characters in the book, Simplicius, was a caricature, and Galileo had put an argument that the Pope himself had made into his mouth. This, as far as the Pope was concerned, was completely unacceptable, and he insisted that Galileo be put on trial in 1633 for breaking the ban. He was sentenced to house arrest for life. In fact, as it happened, it was during this late period of life that he wrote his most important book, the Discourses on Two New Sciences. This included one of the most important advances of medieval science, the mean speed theorem, but Galileo pretty much passes it off as his own discovery. And again, the achievements of the Middle Ages were subsequently forgotten until rediscovered by modern historians. The trial and conviction of Galileo was undoubtedly a terrible mistake by the Catholic Church. But I don't think one mistake should be allowed to completely obscure all the help that the Church gave to science, both before and since the trial of Galileo. For example, the Jesuits, through their long history, have been one of the foremost scientific societies in the world. Today, the Vatican still has its own observatory, and the Catholic Church is firmly set against creationism in its struggle against evolution. And what of evolution itself? Well that of course is another area where there has been great controversy between science and religion. 
In fact, Charles Darwin himself didn't invent evolution at all. From the start of the 19th century, it was becoming widely accepted that the Earth might be very old, and animals and plants could have changed during the great periods of time since creation. In France, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck had even suggested a mechanism for evolution through acquired characteristics in 1801. Lamarckism works in a different way to Darwinian evolution. Lamarck said that, for example, a giraffe might stretch its neck by striving to reach higher leaves in trees, and consequently the offspring of that giraffe might have longer necks themselves. That this idea is false is really quite obvious, because if it's true, if you lost, for instance, a foot and then subsequently had children, you'd expect that those children would be born without a foot as well. And that, of course, isn't true. But Lamarckism was terribly popular because, in some sort of way, it gave individual creatures a stake, a chance to have a say in their own evolution. Charles Darwin's own uncle, in fact, wrote a poem called The Temple of Nature, which presented an evolutionary view of the world, possibly the last time a scientific treatise has been presented in poetic form. Maybe that's a tradition that should be restarted. And in 1844, the Scottish journalist Robert Chambers brought out Vestiges of Creation, which is also massively controversial because it suggested that the Earth was old, creatures had evolved, and that God in fact, was a distant creator who had no interest in the way that the world was today. So when Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859, the stage was set for his own mechanism of evolution. That mechanism, of course, is evolution by random mutation and natural selection. The Origin of Species was controversial, of course, but it wasn't banned. It wasn't even placed on the papal index. Some clergymen found Darwin's theory positively inspiring. The Anglican Charles Kingsley wrote, We knew of old that God was so wise that he could make all things. But behold, he is so much wiser even than that, that he can make all things make themselves. The main point of controversy wasn't over the theory of evolution itself. Nobody seemed to have much of a problem with the idea of animals and plants evolving. What mattered was the position of human beings, and specifically whether or not they are descended from apes. Darwin only hints at this in his origin, but it's obvious what he thought. And during the great debate, we mentioned earlier between Thomas Huxley and Samuel Wilberforce, that was the central point of disagreement. Wilberforce himself had actually written a reasonably positive review of the origin of species. And Huxley was no Darwinistic ultra either. He was never really comfortable with natural selection or the potential for evolution to undermine ethics. But the great debate between them was typified by Wilberforce's question of Huxley as to whether he was related to an ape on his grandmother's or grandfather's side, and Huxley using that remark to turn the debate against Wilberforce. Likewise, 
the Scopes trial in 1915 in Dayton, Tennessee, where Clarence Darrow locked horns with William Jennings Bryan, was not really over evolution itself, but whether or not human beings had evolved from apes. It was only in the 1960s, with the advent of what today we call young earth creationism, that evolution itself began to be challenged by Christian critics. And that's all I have to say about evolution, not because it's too controversial, but because as far as I'm concerned, it isn't controversial enough. Many Christians in the Catholic Church are now firmly lined up on Darwin's side. Instead, I'd like to talk about two other branches of modern science, which I think are potentially even more shocking. But when we look at them more deeply, I think they lead us back to the New Testament and the Church Fathers. But before that, let's just have a quick look at the position of science and religion in today's world. In the past, many great men of science have been unusually religious, even by the standards of their own times. Johann Kepler, Sir Isaac Newton, Joseph Priestley, Michael Faraday and George Mendel are just a few examples. And today, many scientists still are men of God. John Polkinghorne, a world-renowned physicist who became an Anglican priest. Simon Conway Morris, the evolutionary biologist at the University of Cambridge, who never leaves the house without his Bible. And Francis Collins, who ran the Human Genome Project and now heads up the National Institutes of Health. But the proportion of religious scientists is not as great as it once was, although it hasn't really changed in the 20th century. A latest survey from elite US universities shows that about 25% of scientists believe in God, compared to more like 80% of ordinary Americans. I think that this difference is likely to be the product of the scientific education and culture. I think we need to encourage Christians to go into science and not be put off by its atheistic reputation, and we need to give them the support they need to keep their feet firmly on the ground of their faith. Because I don't think that religion holds back science. That much should be obvious by now. I think it provides alternative perspectives, inspiration, a moral framework, and even a metaphysical justification for doing science. For instance, scientists who today want to do experiments on embryos or chimera, that's crosses between animal and human embryos, complain about religious interference but they're really arguing for naive utilitarianism that they think should trump any other sort of moral system. In a democracy, I think scientists must accept oversight from lay people, especially on a moral dimension, and for them to use science to buttress their moral prejudices is not the same as there being a real conflict between science and religion. But modern science does throw up challenges that the religious people have to take seriously not least as a field of neuroscience. Experiments have shown that our brains are necessary for the generation of our personality, memory and consciousness. Take that to an extreme, and perhaps we should ask the question, are we just wet machines, without a soul, without any free will? Well, brain science is still in its infancy, and in fact there are no answers to some of its biggest questions. For example, neuroscientists talk about the easy problem of consciousness and the hard problem of consciousness. 
Now the easy problem is, how do our brains perceive the outside world? And that's a question we can ask, but it's not one that science has yet been able to answer. The hard problem of consciousness is, how do our brains generate self-awareness? But that's a question that just brings up even more questions. So I suppose in summary, the easy problem is still too hard to answer, and the hard problem is really too hard even to ask in a sensible kind of way. Of course, nobody doubts that physical factors can affect our personalities. You only need to have a couple too many drinks down the bar to appreciate that. As in the 19th century, the famous case of Phineas Gage showed that those effects could be permanent. Gage suffered an accident on a railroad in 1848 when a tamping iron, something like a crowbar, smashed through his head. Surprisingly, he seemed to make a full recovery, but soon it became clear that all was not well. A contemporary report says as follows. His contractors, who regarded him as the most efficient and capable foreman in their employ previous to his injury, considered the change of his mind so marked that they could not give him his place again. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint of advice when it conflicts with his desires, at times pertinaciously obstinate, yet capricious and vacillating, devising many plans of future operation which are no sooner arranged than they are abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible. In this regard, his mind was radically changed, so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage. And many other experiments and cases since then have shown that it's clear our minds do need our bodies to function, that our brains do have an effect on our personalities. But when we hear reports on brain science, we should distinguish between the science and the interpretation. But what happens if the materialists are right? The worst case scenario, where we are our bodies and we have no soul and there is no ghost in the machine, does that cause an irreparable problem for the Christian faith? The idea that the real us is our souls which can consciously exist independent from our body, comes from the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. Most especially the story of reincarnation as he tells at the end of his great book, The Republic, planted the idea of the disembodied soul into Western culture. But it isn't a Christian idea, but something that early Christianity absorbed from Plato together with a whole lot else. The New Testament gives a different impression. We know from that that we do need bodies to be human because the resurrected Jesus had one. Our hope of Christians is for resurrection with new unsinful bodies. Even if the materialists are right and we have no soul, which I don't believe, that's not a hope that we have to let go of. I think we do have a soul, but it needs a body to function. It's like the software that needs hardware. It's like a blueprint in the mind of God. Damage to our personalities, like that that afflicted Phineas Gage, or today afflicts so many people with Alzheimer's disease, can be repaired by God when we are resurrected. And thus our new minds in our new bodies will be as unsinful as we hope for. Neuroscience, I think, forces us to take the idea of resurrection seriously, 
and to throw out Plato's heresies and return to the New Testament. We should remember the message of Paul, who was also clear that we hope for resurrection and not for reincarnation or some kind of disembodied existence. Another troubling area of modern science is behavioural genetics, sometimes called evolutionary psychology. It's really the age-old question of nature versus nurture. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we prisoners of our own genes? Richard Dawkins, of course, famously said that we are just great lumbering robots built by our genes to carry us around the world and do their bidding. In fact, modern science has shown, through things like the Missouri study of twins raised apart, that about 50% of the variation between us is genetic. Identical twins, of course, are genetically identical. And if they are raised with separate families and then compared later on in life, we can tell how much of the difference between them is down to their environment and how much of it is down to their genes. I think most of us can live with the idea that 50% of our personalities, of our intelligence, our politics, perhaps even our religious proclivity, are genetically determined. We're not blank slates, and there is such a thing as human nature. But what's more surprising is that upbringing itself appears to have very little effect, except perhaps in the most severe cases, such as the terrible experiences of children in Romanian orphanages. Perhaps the most significant environmental factor is diet. That does matter. A good analogy might be, if a human being was like a cake, then our genes are the recipe, and our diet, well that's the ingredients. But our environment, the way we're brought up, that's just a decor of the kitchen. It doesn't really matter very much to the end result, unless of course the kitchen was such a wreck that it wasn't possible to do any decent cooking in it. None of this absolves us from our responsibility for being good parents. We must still love our children and grow up in a safe and secure home. An unhappy childhood may not scar you for life, but it was still unhappy. But I think we parents can relax slightly about whether we are following the right parenting fats, whether we've been a bit too strict or a bit too lenient, or whether, and I suppose this matters rather more to me, we've let them watch more television than perhaps we ought to. These things really don't appear to matter very much. So perhaps, as parents, the best things we can do is to relax slightly and not to worry about them. Conversely, of course, we can't blame our own parents for our own faults, except, of course, for the genes they've passed on to us. The theories of Freud have been utterly discredited. Religion is not about needing a father figure, and our personalities are not caused by childhood sexual repression. Cancelling might still be beneficial, but the theory of psychoanalysis just doesn't stack up. So, so 50% of the differences between us are down to our genes. An environment doesn't seem to make very much difference. That leaves 50% unaccounted for. Where does that come from? Well, I think what's left is self-determination. 
free will to you and me, our ability to make our own choices. That's not completely unconstrained. And that's something that St Augustine realised over 1500 years ago in his great book, The City of God. St Augustine explained why free-willed humans still need God to be good. And his theory of original sin in some ways looks a little bit like behavioural genetics, which of course he didn't know anything about. Let's have a look at what he sets out in his book. He realised that we have instincts, urges and desires, and that our conscious mind neither approves of them nor can it always resist them. We cannot resist our human nature. We always have this propensity to sin and we cannot control it ourselves. Augustine's great rival Pelagius believed that it was possible for a human being to completely resist sin. And Pelagius is sometimes painted as being a bit more liberal than St Augustine, but that's completely false. Pelagius was an ascetic and he thought, although it was theoretically possible for a human being to commit no sin of his own free will, most of them would fail, most of them were damned. He and a few of his followers were the only ones who would be saved. At heart, Pelagius was an almighty great snob. Augustine also realised that our natures are something that we have inherited. He called this original sin and traced it back to Adam, the first man. Well, essentially he was right. Our natures is in our genes, and these we have inherited from the line of human beings who came before us, all the way back to the beginning of time. So the upshot is that although we do have free will, we can't resist our natures, and our natures are of the world, not of heaven. We need God in order to be perfect. Of course, that's an unpopular message in today's secular world, but it's something that we human, we Christians, always knew. So, when we hear about genetics and brain science, these are subjects that we need to take seriously and we can't just ignore. But we should also remember that these are not subjects that Christians necessarily need to fear, and in some ways they have the capacity to lead us back to the original message of the Gospel. So, to conclude, we've seen how the conflict thesis, the idea that science was held back by religion, has been thoroughly debunked by modern historians. If you hear of an example of the way that religion is supposed to have persecuted science in the past, it's best to treat it with extreme scepticism. In fact, science is the product of a Christian culture and it's part of our Christian heritage. And that means that we should encourage young Christians and students to get into science, but also help them to maintain their faith in that modern secular world. We've also seen that there are challenging findings in modern science, but these can sometimes provide unexpected support for the Christian message. We have to take subjects like neuroscience and behavioural genetics seriously, but we shouldn't expect people like Richard Dawkins to give us unbiased opinions about what these sciences mean. I think we should always remember what Peter Abelard and his compatriots were saying in the Middle Ages. God created both the book of nature and the book of scripture. So we can be confident that they should not contradict, and that science and religion should ultimately be pointing towards the same place. Thank you.